say good morning. I'd like to take you back five days to Tuesday afternoon. The setting is our home, and our backyard, we're having our cement patio replaced. They're there with a backhoe, a front-end loader, wheelbarrows, jackhammers, sledgehammers, shovels, and the cement is being banged up into a million pieces. Enter our grandson, Timothy. You may have seen him this morning, four and a half year old. We had told him what was going to happen. And like most boys, he's excited about construction. He loves construction. He knows every truck and every uh, tractor that's out there. His favorite program, I understand, is this old house. Uh, he knows his equipment. He knows a backhoe from a front-end loader and a jackhammer. And so he, he comes to our home after school. He puts on his little safety vest, his safety goggles, puts his helmet on, you know, his work helmet. I take his little hand and we walk into the backyard. I'm so excited to show him what's going on. And he burst out in tears. I just grabbed him and just took him away. I said, what's wrong? My patio. My patio. See, he didn't understand what had to happen before he could have a nice patio to play on. And we told him, when they're all finished, I'm Gaga, and my wife is Mom. Gaga and Mom have a plan, and it's going to look so nice when it's finished. And you'll be able to play out there and enjoy it outside. But you don't see it now. That's what the book of Ruth is all about. We don't see now what God is doing. In the book of Ruth, you will find the rich and the poor. You will find the Jew and the Gentile. You will find pathos and drama, sorrow and joy, tears and laughter, weddings and singing. Let me give you a quick outline. If you don't want a quick outline, the four chapters. Chapter 1 is working. Uh, chapter 1 is weeping. Chapter 2 is working. Chapter 3 is waiting. And chapter 4 is the wedding. You got that? The weeping, the working, the waiting, and the wedding. Naomi is the prodigal of the Old Testament. She went out to a foreign country with her husband and two sons, and she comes back like the prodigal, empty. Except Naomi brings someone with her, a convert, Ruth. Naomi is a picture of Israel living happily in the promised land. I want you to keep that in mind. Naomi is a picture of Israel living happily in the promised land. She was living happily, and then came the discipline of God in the form of a famine. There's many biblical references to that. And the family moved to Gentile territory. They went into a foreign country for a substitute for which there is no substitute. Sometimes we let circumstances move us out of the will of God. Sometimes we just look at things and we say, I've got to do something. I can't wait for God. I'm just going to go out there. I'm going to do the best that I can. There is no substitute for being where God wants you to be, doing what God has called you to do. And this account begins with a family of four living in Bethlehem in a time of famine. Bethlehem means the house of bread. Interesting. They were in the district called Judah. Judah is praise. And the word of God tells us they were Ephratites. They were fruitful. 
Imagine living in a house of bread, in a land of praise, in a family that is called fruitful, and you don't see that God has it all under his control. So they move to a foreign country where Naomi loses God as her king. Her husband's name was Abimelech. God is my king. She loses God as her king. Naomi, which means my delight, they have two sons, Madon and Kedon. Eventually, those two sons die. So now Naomi has moved to a foreign land. She's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. All in a 10-year period of time. The Word of God tells us this was the time of the judges. You see, today we want the kingdom of God without the king. We want all the kingdom benefits without submitting to the king. They were living in the era of the judges, which was followed by the time when God raised up the kings. Do you remember the first king to come along was Saul? Saul was man's king. Saul was never meant to be God's king. How do I know that? I read my Bible. And back in Genesis 49, it says, the king will come from Judah. And Saul came from Benjamin. So Saul's reign was man's reign. Then it was followed by David, who comes from Judah. Remember we sing the Lamb of God, Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. David directly, a descendant of Jesus Christ. But today many are doing what they want to do on their own, what is right in their own eyes, as they did in the time of the judges. Eventually, God's people in the time of the judges cried out for a leader. And I believe at the end time, people are going to cry out for a leader. And that leader will come. And his name is the Antichrist. And that will be followed by the return of Jesus Christ, the coronation of Christ, when Christ comes again to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords, David's better son. So here's what you can expect when you read the book of Ruth. First of all, it's the word of God. As the word of God, you're going to find truth in the book of Ruth. We live in a day when truth is not prized, it's not valued. You have your truth, I have my truth, we all have our truth, we let each other go. There's God's truth that will never pass away, that will never change. Also, we're going to find hope. We live in a day when there's not a lot of hopeful things out there. You look around and you see this thing happening, that thing happening. Truth is not prized. So when you read the Word of God, you're going to find truth, and you're going to find hope. Secondly, it's a love story. And most of us love love stories. Secondly, it's a beautiful portrait of manhood and womanhood. There's not a lot of help out there in TV and the movies and the media today to know what manhood and womanhood really should look like. The book of Ruth is tremendously helpful in getting a picture of a beautiful and noble vision of womanhood and manhood. Fourthly, there's a great issue here of racial and ethnic diversity. We're drawn into this book of Ruth, and we find a Jewish family invaded by a Gentile from Moab of all places. Moab, she was unclean. She may have been an Arab based upon the region she was from, but she was a pagan until she was drawn into the faith. Fifthly, the account, like much of the Bible, should be read on three levels. There's a primary level, 
There's a practical level and there's a prophetic level. As you read the Word of God, the primary level, what's the story of Ruth telling us? It's a historical account. Secondly, it's practical. How does this apply to my life? And thirdly, prophetic. What can we learn about God's future plan? So there's the primary, the practical, and the prophetic. Sixthly, the book is mainly about God working and fulfilling his purpose in the midst of calamity and sorrow. It's about the work of God in the darkest of times. It's about speaking to a people who are about to lose hope. Don't lose hope. When everything seems to be going wrong, God is still on the throne. He's still in control. So the point of the book is to tell us what God is doing in our lives right now. What's God doing in your life? What's God doing in your family life? What's God doing in this church? What's God doing in this country? What's God doing in this world? The big application this morning. So let the Holy Spirit bring the application to your life that's needed. But let me tell you, God is at work. And it may look like our patio did to our, our grandson. All broken up, bits and pieces. But there's something beautiful coming. Something good's going to come. Hold on. Hang on. Something good is coming. And the ultimate purpose of this book, though not the most prominent, has to do with David, King David, and his son, Jesus Christ. Why did I jump from David to Jesus? We'll get there in just a moment. Back in AD 70, the Jewish people were scattered to the four corners of the earth. Nearly 1,900 years, they were out there scattered. Then, 75 years ago, when I was just a very little boy, on May 4th, 1948, the state of Israel was born. And the, God's people began they, coming back to Israel. Now, I said Naomi is a type of Israel. Naomi means my delight. Throughout the Word of God, Jesus talks about his people his covenant people, old covenant, new covenant, as being his delight. Let me tell you today, Naomi is back in the land. And Ruth the Gentile, most of us Gentiles, Goyim, most of us are about to become the bride through a Jewish redeemer. Did you hear that? Naomi is back in the land. Ruth is with her. And we are about to become the bride of Christ through a Jewish redeemer. The message of Ruth. Ruth 1.1 tells us when the time, uh, the account happened. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he, his wife, and his two sons. In our Bibles, the book of Ruth is right after the book of Judges. If you go to the Hebrew Bible, it's not there. You won't find it until you get to Proverbs. Proverbs 31. You can read all about my wife in Proverbs 31. The qualities of a good wife. The Jewish people associate the qualities of a good wife with Proverbs 31 and the life of Ruth. Interesting how they place it, and we do. The book of Judges is a time of failure for the people of Israel. Again and again, they fail, they sin, they repent. 
God sends them a judge. They get out of the hole that they're in for a while, seven times throughout the book of Judges. They fall down, they repent, God restores them, then they fall down again, repeating the same pattern. It was not a hopeful time, it was a terrible time in which Ruth lived. A time when every man did what was right in his own eyes, everything in society was falling apart, truth was relative, but the point of the book of Ruth, in the day in which we live, in the circumstance in which you find yourself, is to give an opening, a glimpse into what God is doing in the darkest of times. There's a little window into this family that has global implications. So let me show you that if you go to the last chapter of Ruth, Ruth chapter 4. Now this is the genealogy of Perez, and Perez begat Hezron, and it goes on and on and on with the genealogy. Verse 21, and Solomon begat Boaz, ah, he'll be important here, and Boaz begot Obed, and Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begat David. You need to know where the book ends. Most of us say, you know, I've read the book, I know how it turns out. We need to know how this book ends. It ends with a genealogy, not a dry, boring genealogy, but a very important genealogy. The book intentionally ends here because David was the greatest king of Israel. He wasn't perfect, but he was the greatest king. Israel experienced their greatest triumph, their greatest godliness during David's time. And the point of what we're saying here, here in the darkest of times, in the period of the judges, there's a little family. And it looks like this little family is having a rough time. It looks like everything is going wrong for Naomi. And yet, there's a relative Boaz, the kinsman redeemer who's going to come along, who's going to marry the widowed daughter-in-law Ruth, and the marriage gives rights to King David, who's the forerunner of Jesus Christ. Now, I jump straight from David to Jesus because that's what Jesus did over in Matthew 22. Let me just read you that portion of Matthew 22, uh, verse 41. They've been questioning Jesus over and over and trying to trap him uh, just before he goes to Calvary, asking him questions. What's the greatest commandment? And uh, questions like that. And uh, when they were all through, Jesus said, what do you think about me? What do you think about Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. They skipped all the generations and they go from David to Christ. David to the Messiah. And that's exactly what the Word of God is telling us here. Because the book is about God's promises. And that ends the conversations for the Pharisees. They said they had no more questions after that when they jumped from David to Jesus Christ, to the Messiah. The conversation was over. See, Jesus wanted them to understand what Ruth 4 is all about. David the Messiah would come and bring hope to the world more than they ever dreamed of, more than they could ever conceive of. He's not merely a man in a fleshly genealogy that faces down to another man. He's son of man, but he's son of God. And the way the book ends in the last verse sheds light on what God is doing in 
uh, Naomi and Ruth and Boaz's life in the judge's time and what he's doing today, God is preparing the world for the return of his son, Jesus Christ. When we're with Ruth and Naomi and Boaz in the time of the judges, the worst of all times, it looks like nothing's going right, and the book is here to tell us, don't judge a book by its cover. Don't judge the patio by the broken up pieces. God is at work. He's preparing the most important event in the universe. At that time, he was preparing for his son to come, for the incarnation. And now he's preparing the whole universe for the return of his son, when he will appear again to catch us up to be his bride. A book is so exciting. It looks as though everything's over for Joseph, if you go back to Joseph's time. It looks as if everything's over for Esther. If you go back to Esther, the Jews are going to be annihilated. If you go back to the exile, you think they're never going to get out of the exile. If you and I were at Calvary, and we're coming to the table this morning, 3 o'clock Friday afternoon, and a reporter was there to ask a question, what are you thinking? How are you feeling? And I know I would have said, you heard the man. He said, Telestai, it's finished. It's over. It's done. We thought the one who was going to redeem us. See, that's Friday. But Sunday's coming. And in your life, you may be living in Friday. But Sunday is coming. And that's what this table is all about, of hope for today and hope for eternity. And the Bible says, go with me into the dark times. Watch the plan of God at work. You may not see all of it. You may not sense all of it. You may not see it all completed in your lifetime. But God is working out a plan in his sovereign will. Ruth 1 to 5 uh, describes the misery of Naomi. I'm not sure why the book is called Ruth. I think it should be called Naomi because it begins with Naomi. It ends with Naomi. Ruth just happens to be the one who has the baby. But uh, the book is about Naomi, her calamity, her loss of faith, her recovery of faith. See, Naomi knows who caused the famine. She says that God caused the famine. She's read our Old Testament. She knows Leviticus uh, 26. That says, if you walk and obey my commandments and do them, I will give you rain in their season, and the land shall yield its increase. The trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And if you don't, Calamity and famine is coming. That's the story of Joseph, too, isn't it? In the darkest of times, it had to do with famine. In Egypt, where did the famine come from in Joseph's time? There was a famine over the whole earth, and it says God sent the famine. He sent the famine so he could raise up Joseph, so Joseph could preserve the people of God. Amos 8, 11. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sound, send a famine throughout the land, not a famine of food or thirst, but a famine for hearing the words of the Lord. Naomi says the famine has come from God's hand. So they leave Bethlehem, they go to Moab, which is actually absolutely playing with fire because God said they were to keep separate from the Moabites. Uh, for spiritual reasons, not for ethnic or racial reasons, but for spiritual reasons. You can't mix with pagans. That's the idea. Oh, we say at the college, we cannot continue to send our children to Caesar. 
for their education and be surprised when they come home as Romans. But they said, oh, the grass is greener. At least they have grass down there in Moab. When you walk by sight and not by faith, you begin running away from your problem. Beloved, you don't want to run. You want to grab a hold of God. You want to grasp a hold of God in those problems. Better, be, better to be hungry in the will of God than full outside the will of God. Oh, but everybody's doing it. Not everybody. There were still people left in Bethlehem. Boaz was back there, among others. Think about young Daniel, a teenager, taken away, put into exile. And he said, I've purposed in my heart not to defile myself. I'm not going to go the way of the wicked, of the pagan." So like the prodigal, Naomi and her family pack up their bags, they go to a foreign land to find that for which there was no substitute, the will of God. They were living for the physical and not for the spiritual. The first recorded temptation of Jesus. Interestingly enough, the devil said, turn these stones into bread. Esau sold his birthright for a pot of stew. A family was willing to conform to the world. The heart of every problem is the problem of the heart. And there in Moab, as we said, her husband dies, her sons marry pagan women. One marries Orpah, one marries Ruth, and then Naomi's two sons die, they don't have any children, Naomi's husband is dead, the famine is, has been removed. Pretty bad situation. In a foreign land, your husband has passed away, your two sons are dead, you don't have any grandchildren. It's awful. Put yourself in Naomi's sandals. Famine. A foreign country. Your husband has passed. Your sons have married the wrong women. If you're Naomi, you must be wondering, am I cursed? What's going on here? God doesn't love me anymore. Then Ruth 1, verse 6, and she arose with her daughters in law, that she might return to the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. There's bread back in the house of bread. Bethlehem is thriving again. There's a tiny ray of hope for her. And she goes, starts to go back to Bethlehem with her two daughter-in-laws. That's what verses 8 to 13 are all about. She's trying to persuade them to go home. Stay here. Go back to your families. Because if you go with me, people are going to say, that's Naomi. And look at her daughter-in-laws. <laughs> They're not one of us. What poor choices her sons made. So she's trying to persuade them to go home. When you find yourself in difficult circumstances, you can be like Naomi. You can try to cover up. Leave the evidence behind. Cover it up. Or like Oprah, you can give up. She went back home. Or like Ruth, you can stand up. Naomi is bitter. Orpah is the backward one. Ruth is the blessed one. This narrative covers about 10 to 12 years. You could write thousands of pages about those 10 or 12 years. They're covered here in just five verses. And you need to ask yourself, why are these verses here? Why are they so important that they would be in God's holy word that will never pass away. Why tell the women to go home? 
I think it emphasizes Naomi's misery. She was miserable. Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. I'm too old to have a husband. In other words, I have nothing for you. Go home. She's drawing attention to her misery. Her husband's gone. Her husband, her, her dreams are gone. And her dream life is gone. Do you have a dream life? Did life turn out the way you thought it would? And I hear some of you saying, no, it's way different than I ever thought it would be. But God is faithful. And she thought, I'm just going to go back to Bethlehem and die. No, my daughters, it's a bitter for me. For your sake, the hand of the Lord has gone out again. Don't stay around me, I, I'm, I'm cursed. Sounds like Job, doesn't it? Almost identical. The hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Is it true? Yeah, yes and no are the answers to that one. Yeah, God was disciplining her. But there was grace behind it all. When God disciplines you, it says he disciplines those whom he loves. The ultimate answer is going to be he's not ultimately against Naomi. He's not ultimately against you. It may feel like it. You may give a half dozen reasons why you think it's true, but it's not. Secondly, these verses draw out the custom that's foreign to us, but essential to understanding. There's a Jewish custom in the culture of that time in the Old Testament law. If a man dies, that his brother or some close relative was to marry the widow in the name of the dead man, a strange custom called jinnum a form of Leverite marriage. Remember, Jesus was asked the question, if a man die and leave his widow, and the next husband, the brother comes along and marries, the next one, then all, all seven leave, leave her without children, whose husband is she going to be? And Jesus, that's not the question, because in heaven there's neither marriage nor given in marriage. He's referring to this Leverite marriage of Judaism. It's over in Deuteronomy 25. The brother of a man died without children, He's permitted and encouraged to marry the widow so the name of the man could be preserved. That's why Naomi says, I have no sons. See, if we just read it without understanding that, we might say, who cares? Go on back with Naomi, find a nice Jewish husband back in Bethlehem and live happily with him. No, I have no sons. That's not the way it worked. I can't remarry. It seems odd to us. But there's a little window of hope appearing, isn't there? The famine is over, and Ruth and Oprah are willing to go back. And maybe I should just pause here to give one more practical implication. When you're depressed, your vision is impaired, and you don't see clearly. You can't see what's going on. The famine is being lifted. Ruth was going to say yes. She hadn't thought about Naomi, the kinsman that was back there in Bethlehem. And she says, I don't have anybody. I'm a miserable person. I'm in a miserable condition. And so you can't see clearly. And that's why we need each other. That's why we need each other in the body of Christ. You can't go off by yourself and live the Christian life because most likely you'll crash spiritually and emotionally. 
you don't have somebody to come by and take your hand and say, you can't see it now, but I can see it. God is in this. It's like holding little Timothy's hand in a big crowd. He can't see it, but I can see it. So hold my hand. We'll get through this together. So whatever you're going through, we need each other. We need to hold each other up. Hebrews said, as you see the day of Christ approaching, encourage one another. And then the third reason here uh, is so we can hear the words of Ruth saying, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my people. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Is this woman making a commitment? Your God will be my God. I'm going to go with you, not just till you die, but I'll die in the same place you die, and your people will be my people. Amazing words. We often hear them at a wedding. She would have to leave her family, her familiar language, her familiar customs and culture. She was embracing the life of widowhood forever. She had no prospect of marriage. And she's not arguing with Naomi. She simply says, I have nobody, and I'm going to go back with you and encourage you. She's embracing everything from the word of God's perspective. We would say Ruth was all in. I'm playing for keeps. If it's 20 years and you pass away, and another 20 years, that's okay. Your God will be my God. I don't know how she got there, but she got there. There were 10 years between the arrival of Naomi and her sons over in Moab and the marriage and death and all that happened. Somehow in that 10-year period of time, Naomi, as a mother-in-law, Ruth came to know and love the God of Israel and to serve him. She came to trust him. Now they both go back together. The townspeople see Naomi coming and meet her. She's been gone for 10 years. In Ruth 19, uh, chapter 1, verse 19 and following. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem, and it happened. Oh, don't you love happenings? God's happenings, God's timing. You'll see it several times in the book of Ruth. And it happened when they came to Bethlehem, all the city was excited because of them. And the woman said, is this my delight? Is this Naomi? And she said, don't call me my delight. Call me Mara Bitter. We get the word Mara from Mara. Call me Bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, the prodigal daughter, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has testified against me, the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. She knows that God exists. She believes that God is sovereign. She just doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah, Naomi, you're right. You need to open your eyes. God has a plan. God is working out something. It gets dark. 
But God is working out a plan, and you're going to be in the line of King Jesus. God is working it all out now. And the reason God wants Ruth to go along is because he's working out that plan to show the world the kind of ancestors he wants feeding into his son's bloodline. Four women are listed over Matthew chapter 1. They're all kind of questionable backgrounds. Here's a Moabitess in the bloodline of our Savior. You see, because he came to seek and to save that which was lost, Jew and Gentile. God is doing things Naomi can't dream of. God is doing things this morning. Listen, God is doing things you can't dream of. Just let him be sovereign. Let him do what needs to be done. Grab somebody else's hand if you need it, but move forward in his plan and his purpose. The main point, the prominent point of this book is God is at work in the darkest of times and the ultimate meaning of this book is that the greatest good God is bringing for his people was to bring the incarnation. And the greatest thing that we're now waiting for is his return. The Messiah is paramount display of God's grace and God's glory. He came from David who came from Jesse who came from Obed, who came from Ruth. God is doing something wonderful. Do you believe it? And you receive it from your life. He's doing something in the present, and he's doing something in the future. The songwriter has written, when you don't understand his plan, in the presence of the king, bow the knee. Whatever God's doing, Let's bow the knee this morning as we come to the table. We don't understand a lot of things. We probably never will. And I've come to that point. God, you tell me. It doesn't matter that I don't understand everything you're doing. Because if I understood everything, I'd be God. So, Lord, I bow the knee in the presence of the King. On the night on which Jesus, our Lord, was betrayed, he wanted to give the people a sign of the covenant of love. As God had once assured Noah with a sign of the rainbow, told Abraham to lift up his eyes to see the stars, he sanctified the Sabbath for Israel. Now Jesus, at the last Passover, broke a loaf of bread, poured a cup of wine. Bread and wine, two very ordinary elements. Our crucified, risen, and reigning Lord declares to us his victories. He tells us who we are. He gives us a taste of his coming kingdom, where once again he will provide over supper, but this time with no sorrow. It's no accident that in the ministry of Jesus, he multiplies the bread and the wine. He consecrates both to his church as a covenant meal and promises both in the ages to come. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper on a day that was already charged with tremendous significance, Passover. For centuries, the families of Israel had gathered on the Passover to eat the meat of the slaughtered lamb, along with bitter herbs and unleavened bread, and to relive the night when the sacrificial blood shielded them from God's wrath. Annually, Israel was to remember 
that though they were once slaves, now they are redeemed. Like the Passover meal, the Lord's Supper recalls a past deliverance. We were slaves. And declares to those who eat, we are God's redeemed people. However, unlike the Passover, the Lamb of the Supper is the Lord himself, whose blood protects us not only for a night, but for eternity. The death he dies is once for all, unrepeated and unrepeatable, and the exodus redemption he accomplishes thus doesn't free us from Pharaoh, but from sin and death and hell. The cup we receive is not the blood of bulls and goats, which can never take away our sins, but the precious blood of Jesus. Jesus' blood not only covers sin for a time, but for all eternity. With his blood, Jesus secured an eternal redemption. This is the Lord's table. It doesn't belong to a denomination, a local church, an individual, a group of people. It's the Lord's table. And so all who have received him as Savior and Lord are welcome to come to this table. The Word of God admonishes us to partake having examined ourselves. If you're here today and have not repented of your sin and received Christ, then you should not partake. But if you are a Christ follower, you should allow the Holy Spirit to convict and the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse that be gone forever and that make you worthy to partake. Partaking proclaims we are in fellowship with Jesus Christ and with one another. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse. The table looks back to Calvary, but it also looks forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So we're going to look two directions as we come to the table. Thank God for Calvary and thank God for that marriage supper of the Lamb yet to come.
Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this bread that represents your body, a body given for us, prepared before eternity, prepared before all things you had to plan for us. We thank you for giving yourself fully, entirely. 